This is Beware of the Leopard, episode 210, Holidays. It was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet, stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying, Beware of the Leopard. leopard, leopard. I'm Mark Steadman, and I'm so cool, I have to take a holiday in a fridge just to warm up. I'm John Hickman, and I'm the guy in the office who tells you he needs a holiday to get over his holiday. I'm Danny Smith, and I'm telling you, why not have a drink, have a drive, go out and see what you can find. I'm Bounder of adventure. I've been on one of your package tours many times before, so your advert really caught my eye. What's the point of going abroad if you just end up being treated like a sheep? Carted around in buses surrounded by sweaty, mindless oaves from Kettering and Coventry. Their blotted backs and their cardigans and their transistor radios complaining about the tea. Oh, they don't make it properly, do they? And stopping at endless York and bodegas, selling fish and chips and Watney's Red Barrel and calamaris and two veg and sitting there cotton sunfrocks bursting timothy white sun cream of their puffy raw swollen purient flesh <laughs> rosie stop it they keep going keep going did it on the first day being heard into their countless hotel miramars and bellevues and continentals their international luxury modern rubettes and swimming falls full of red barrel and fat german businessmen pretending to be acrobats forming pyramids and frightening the children and barging into queues and if you're on table spot on seven you miss your a bowl of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup, the first item in the menu of international cuisine. Every Thursday night there's a bloody cabaret in the bar for you. Welcome to Beware of the Leopard, <laughs> or what's left of it. This used to be a podcast about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, if we were a popular open-world PlayStation game, we'd have completed the main quest, so we're basically now just spending our time doing weird side quests and waiting for new downloadable content. Platinum the Hitchhiker's Guide. Absolutely. In a bit, we'll each add our own entries to the guide on the topic of holidays. But first, we have some long-awaited follow-up to get to. Listener Gemma wrote to us back in October last year. It was a bit of a long email, but there was quite a bit to address. First off, gentlemen, she was right about the radio series. She was right that the radio series is the canonical thing and everything else is merely a poor imitation. Well, until the Netflix show drops. I mean, I mean... Of course. I mean, poor imitation? An imitation. I'll grant you that. It doesn't have to be poor. An imitation. A shadow on the cave, perhaps, if you mm. want to go platonic. Mm. But yeah, okay, I will sit still for that. But I have my grievances because the first one I encountered was the TV series. No, the book. The books are far better than the radio play. Easily. Nope. Yep. Yeah, easily. Uh, she's right that Rooster is the worst. Well, I see. Actually, I don't know. I think in the in the radio series, he's perhaps the worst. But in the book, he doesn't have much of a personality. Oh, so, so we're building fun. fallacies in here from the first one. So because we said the radio show is the worst, then therefore the next worst character has to be because it's worst in that. Okay, that's fine. Which one's Rooster? He's the one who presents Zaphod with the towel that has the different stripes on it so you can suck one end that has an antidepressant. I think what makes him most annoying is that the voice actor was a little bit annoying. Zaphod is a sexist bully who never gets his comeuppance. I like to defend Zaphod because I identify with Zaphod, not because of his sexism, which is apparent. I think it's not that he's a sexist character. I think he is a product of a sexist time. And 
I think that he is a extrovert written by an introvert. So when you say the time, you mean the time that Douglas Adams was writing it? Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Like uh, he he was seeing Not at the time in the galaxy. No, he was seeing extroverted men that he considered mentally inferior, maybe in some ways, getting women when he couldn't. Hey, doll, I've got a spaceship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so he is a he is an extrovert written by an introvert. And I think he is callous, but I don't think he's specifically sexist. I won't defend his sexism because it's apparent and it's real. And he is a bu- I don't think he's a bully, but I do think he is very self-centered and a narcissist. His place in the story isn't at risk, but his characterization as, as a sexist is the thing we're talking about. So we're not like we we're not saying the thing that some people say. Oh, you can't have a sexist character because X or Y. Yeah, you're, you're right. Like sexist characters exist. He is sexist. That's just it. So I think you've just agreed with the point. He's pretty much every ist. A counterpoint to that is that there is an incel, that which is also a point that Gemma made, or he has incel tendencies. When Danny said extrovert written by an introvert, I was thinking that comes from Adams being the sort of person who could be radicalised to be an incel, perhaps, in the sense that he feels unconfident, feels overtaken by the John Lloyds of this world. I, I think. I think that... When Adam sat down to write his A fight, he wasn't gonna. He, he didn't sit down and go, right. I'm gonna make him uh, obno- obnoxious to women specifically. So to say he's a sexist character is so oh, because we're grading on a curve. I mean, as I mean, women don't do well in in in, in, in that of time and also in Douglas Adams's work. Yeah. So yeah, he, he does sexist things, but I don't think he was ever intended to be written specifically. Yeah, specifically yeah. a misogynist. I no, I think he was. I think he was, but I don't think I don't think Douglas is necessarily celebrating it and saying we should find that cool appealing. Could Ford be gay or asexual? And uh, that's not one or the other. Could, you know. <laughs> could Ford be gay or asexual? I think that it is tempting to make any character that is purposely an outsider queer because queer people will identify with any outsider character because especially anyone born within section 28 when you had to grow up at school not knowing what was going on you just knew it wasn't normal you know air quotes so i'd love him to be queer in some way i'd love him to be part of our lovely lgbtq community so yes i assume the the reason for the question is and i'm just thinking back now i don't think he's ever involved in any romantic b-plots or anything like that and you don't think he ever expresses a preference and he does allude to like good times with the triple-breasted whore like a thing but rather rather as a passenger rather than a perpetrator unlike arthur who wants it too much i don't think ford is that bothered if he gets it but i think if he does get it he's not going to be fussy about from whence it comes i would love him to be asexual though I'd love him to be kind of, because that's the ultimate outsider, because a lot of society and our responses are driven by desire and like sexual desire, especially is all the way through the book. So I love the idea of Ford being even an outsider to all of that, like an observer, the ultimate hitchhiker, where he's just observing these weird rituals that all these creatures go through. Like he, we meet him in this kind of mentor role in terms of the narrative where he's world well not worldly he's galaxy <laughs> galaxy but he whereas arthur is very i want a girlfriend and a nice job and i've got a house and isn't that all pleasant ford is a little bit more yeah i'm just coasting around having experiences and what happens to me happens to me he's quite groovy like that yeah. right 
and some castings for mm-hmm. the Netflix series we have from Gemma. Hugh Skinner as Arthur. He was a bit young for Arthur when he was in W1A, but like COVID's happened and years have passed. And uh, I think he's probably about 27 right now. Julian Rhind-Tutt as Ford. I like this. I think Julian Rhind-Tutt is very sweeping and graceful. He's otherworldly. He is otherworldly. And then we've got Paul Rudd as Zaphod. Doesn't work. He's to every man. Doesn't work at all. Could you not one man him? I don't know what the opposite of every man is. But could you not, you know, de-every man him? I think he's slightly too likeable, though. He, yeah. he does arrogance really well, and you kind of, like, let him off. You keep your rock well. Yeah. Keep your rock well as Zaphod and put Rudd into the prefect spot. Now you've got a stew going. Uh, thank you, Gemma, for, for your contribution. And yes to socialism and 10% more kindness. Completely agree. Thank you very much for your wonderful email. Gemma has a couple of podcasts of her own, uh, one on dreams and the science of sleep, and a rewatch podcast of Joss Whedon's Dollhouse. Links to both of those are in the show notes. I once wrote a book for a worldwide audience, mainly in America, and I forgot that they don't use the word holidays in the same way that we do. So I wrote this whole and this whole chapter about doing a, a film of your holidays. It was a book about video editing. And they all thought it was about Christmas. <laughs> or the 4th of July. Or Halloween. They call lots of weird things a holiday. I wanted you to make sure that you told our listeners that we... We're essentially talking about vacay as well as holly bobs. Right. Yes, no, that's a good point because we don't know. Thank you for bringing it back on track, John. You make a good point. Yes, when we are referring to holidays, we are referring to what people, well, I was going to say wrongly called, but that's not fair. But, you know, uh, vacations, yes. Can this episode therefore be called holidays, brackets, disambiguation, vacay? There you go. Well, can you also then explain why the American song songular artist Madonna, very famous, grip it and rip it, very famously recorded a song called Holiday, which was definitely about vacations. It well, she said Christmas. holidays celebrate because she was hmm. celebrating the holiday of Halloween. Ah, that's yeah, what it was. Yeah, she doesn't specify. No, she's she going to celebrate not. and have a good time. She was on a lot of coke. There you are. Um, John Hickman, what were the hitters going to say about holidays? <laughs> A listless woman from Beetlejuice tries to break out of her funk by visiting the beaches of Ursa Minor Beta, where she falls in love with a swarthy young Aldebaran waiter. During the festival season, a teaser from Beetlejuice 5 hooks up with an editorial assistant from the Megadodo Corporation on Sacropilia Hentia, where they play Hunt the Wocket during the Assumption of St. Antwell. And, at an exclusive lakeside resort on Beth Selimin, a naive and awkward three-chi child becomes a three-chi woman when a rebellious Dentrassi camp employee teaches her how to dance the Arkans seven-legged two-step, but sexily. Yes, the holiday romance truly spans all species and all of space and time. And therein lies the problem, the problem of time. When two sexy young things meet at a moon's party on Vimia Delta, the heat, cheap wine, abundant drugs, lack of clothes and thrum-thrum of the 4D soundstage inevitably leads to fewer clothes, damp heat and a lot of thrum-thrumming. Night turns to day, turns to breakfast, a walk, an afternoon thrum perhaps, then two strangers are now lovers and are back beneath the moons once more. They dance, drink and laugh. Days and nights pass, the moons wax, feelings grow, but then a ticket, a ship, a promise made, and a departure. 
And what of that promise? I'll see you soon. We'll meet again. Come and visit me soon. But it never works out. One ship streaks out beyond the Vixeran belt and onto the far fingers of the spindliest spiral arm of the galaxy. Another cruises sedately towards the old light of planet New Venep. With every second that passes for one, a minute passes for another. Science puts its arm around both these lovers and says to them, your heart is but a pump at the centre of a complex system of pipes and tubes, and yet you will feel it ache when I tell you about time dilation, relativity and just a fuckton of maths. Young love has no need for physics, but its resilience is stretched the first time one places an exorbitantly expensive call through sub-ether, whereupon they connect with a frail shadow of their bow. Hair thin upon the head, but thick in the nose. Only their eyes maintain a sparkle of youth and are full of love. They whisper across the stars, I waited. Some have tried to mitigate this through the use of suspended animation, but it often ends in tears when, after a few weeks, their holiday lover gives them the cold shoulder. Time travel has proven one of the more effective ways to keep holiday romances alive. But time travel, of course, is fraught with dangers. Not least of all, realising that you've just spent two weeks sharing big drinks with sparklers as well as other fluids with your own grandson. Well-known killjoys, the campaign for real time, have been working for some time to outlaw holiday romances. They say summer flings at a galactic scale are creating time paradoxes, wormholes and eddies in the space-time continuum. As a counterpoint, the free love organisation of the Calabrian Kappa Epsilon regulators say that's just the sort of thing the campaign for real time would say, as they don't know how to talk to girls. Recently, both sides met up on Rubus Minor to hash out a code of practice for summer loving. It happened so fast, a simple plan drawn up to allow free love to prevail while keeping the timelines clear. In fact, it happened so fast that they all had a lot of time to kill and Rubus Minor happens to have a lot of moon parties. This presented a perfect opportunity to test the strength of the new rules. All holiday flings are to be sex only. Nobody can trade numbers or make plans. Or, as one real-timer who really doesn't know how to talk to girls said, what happens on Alpha Centauri stays on Alpha Centauri. This has ushered in a new era of guilt-free holiday romping across most of the galaxy, and brought with it a lot of interesting and amusing venereal diseases. And the moon parties are fantastic, with lots of thrumming. There are, of course, a few planets where the rules have yet to be properly codified. One planet yet to observe this simple rule is Earth, where holiday flings continue to lead to complications, emotional and temporal, as so brilliantly captured by the middle-aged teenagers in the movie Grease. Strong start. We're going back My in, aren't we? What? We're going back in. Haven't missed a beat, have we? Oh, he's been saving that up, hasn't he? He's been. Hasn't he? Just he's had podcast blue balls for the last few. <laughs> He hasn't in any way written that on the train back from Selfridges. He's been... No, no. <laughs> My God, man. I mean, there's poetry in there. I mean, you know, there's there's beautiful imagery and then and then it's very sharply undercut by having sex with your own grandson. But apart from that... Um, I mean, that will undercut a lot of things. <laughs> it will undercut... Well, a DRB check for a start, but the... Even in the most debauched of the upper classes, that is a faux pas. Like, <laughs> it's it's frowned Like, even it's, at Eaton, yeah. that's a faux pas. <laughs> and that's saying something. So... John, is that written from experience anyway? Have you had a summer love to whom you have had to say farewell? Not really, no, but it's just a nice trope to kind of go 
trudging along with. All right, don't break the mood. No, no, I, thought, no, I think it's, it's supposed to be hard, isn't it? Like, well, yeah, if you don't want it to happen too fast. Absolutely. <laughs> I actually owe a debt for that piece to the first Red Dwarf novel. Because the first Red Dwarf novel has a bit in it about stasis and how... So, so stasis is the, is the tech in Red Dwarf that allows people to be in suspended animation. And that's the nucleus of the bit. It, so Rob Grant and Doug Naylor wrote this lovely bit about how the first out-of-solar system missions led to problems because they used suspended animation. So people came back and they were younger than their own grandchildren. And their really good line was, it was a great opportunity for Hallmark cards. <laughs> and that was where I started, actually, with that, with that bit. So has anyone ever had a, a summer romance here? Like, is that... Is that in the realm of anybody's experience? Apart from the girl that I tried to hit on, um, who I wrote my number on a piece of paper, and then while she was, she worked at, behind the bar at this holiday camp, and while she was mopping the tables, I came and uh, I, I went over to her. And Thank I you for dropped, clarifying. Keep, I dropped my piece of paper <laughs> into her bucket, and I hadn't realised no! <laughs> the bucket was full of liquid. So from her point of view, you just came over, dropped a piece of litter into a mop bucket, and then I presumably just walked off. Oh, Danny, no, no, I made a speech beforehand. That's so much worse. And then dropped a piece of litter. Oh, oh, Danny, it's one of the things that keeps me awake at night. Oh, no. <laughs> it's one of the demons that haunts me. I, I, you have no reason to be haunted by that. No, no, none at all. Mark, this doesn't end. This piece doesn't end unless you can... Recreate that speech for us now. Oh God, no! I can't. I can't. I've I've got a fairly high embarrassment threshold with you people, but we are we're in danger. No, I can't. I it's so sincere, and I just I can't do it. My cringe level is in empathy for you, not for her. Thank you. She experienced something quite sweet. I won her a teddy bear. I won her. I went to one of those grabbers and I spent, I don't know, maybe four pound on the grabber things to, to grab her a teddy bear. You experienced something horribly mortifying and I understand mm. why it plays on your mind, but she mm. experienced something quite sweet and yeah, you, you shouldn't feel bad about it. Thanks, buddy. John Bounds, have you ever had a summer romance? No. Okay. <laughs> Did I tell you about the crazy person that I was seeing while I was doing Camp America? That all went horribly bad. Go on. So, I did Camp America the year before I went to university, and I was going out with somebody. And I'm going to put this out there. I cheated on that person, and I am incredibly sorry for doing that. There, there are no excuses for it. There are circumstances, but there are no excuses for it. And I'm going to put that out there. I am a terrible person for doing that. And, yeah, I'm not asking for sympathy in this situation whatsoever because I know that I was in the wrong. So, that out of the way. I was going out with someone, it was towards the end of the relationship, it should have been the end of the relationship, it ended up not being, but it should have been. And while I was in Camp America, I was persistently hounded, pursued, courted by a young lady while I was there. In the end, I relented. You're only times. human, Dan. Again, terrible person. But because I was going to university and I was stopping in halls and stuff, and I was literally getting off the plane and going next day to check into halls so I could actually sign in and do all the things... Um, the only person that I trusted with my email address was my then-girlfriend. When you say trusted with your email, like she had the l password? She had the password and she was fielding emails from my halls and arranging it. So, ca camp finishes and apparently this girl is emailing me constantly in the meantime. I'm travelling around after camp, seeing people having a good time. 
I immediately get back to Birmingham. While I am sitting down with my family and girlfriend, the moment that I walk through the door, this girl phones my mobile number and has a conversation with me. And I apparently go ashen white. And then it gets worse. I go to university. I don't check email at that time because I've completely forgotten I even have an email account because it was that point. This girl says that she's in England and she wants to come see me. I don't know about this. My current girlfriend does, though. I end up answering my mobile number and meet her. Uh, for a drink and explain the situation that I have a girlfriend and this is all a misunderstanding and I've been a terrible person. My girlfriend, English girlfriend, happens to call me up while we're having that conversation. I answer it in my pocket. What? And my no. current girlfriend at the time... I, so this is what happens to me. I'm having an incredibly awful conversation with this girl that, I, yeah, I lied to. And I look at my phone and it's an hour and a half into a call to my girlfriend. What is happening? That's, this is insane. Oh, no. No. I can't imagine this happening on telly. This is <laughs> mad. Yeah, no, 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 none of these circumstances. If, if it happened in this fiction, I'd be like, nope, too many, too, and, too many and, things. And... For context for people who don't know you, this is happening in, like, 98? 2003, 2002. Oh, a little bit later, okay. I went to Bristol for a year, and then I jacked that in, and then I went to oh, I yeah, went to Birmingham yeah, Uni yeah, much, yeah. much, much later, so... So, Dan, please take me to the moment where you look at your phone and you realise that this call has been going on for an hour and a half. Let's really slow down time and get into what are you thinking, what are you feeling, what's coming up for you. So... I look at my phone and it's an hour and a half in and it was one of them old, the Nokias were the stretched ones. It doesn't have who it was on the call, but I'm pretty sure because God's yeah. not kind. So yeah. I know who's on the call. So I don't hang up. I, you know, you know, the adrenaline squirts into your body and you go mm. cold. That happens. Mm -hmm. I immediately stand up and run outside so I can hear and I put the phone next to my head and I'm like hello and then I hear crying and I hang up and then I check the call records and yep so the American girl says look I planned on stopping with you tonight so I've got nowhere to go can I stop at your place and I'm like well that's the very least that I can do so I spend the rest of the night kind of in this horrible kind of not knowing what's going on and then in the morning i got on three trains and went to the door of this girlfriend mm -hmm. in wales and basically just stood on the step and was like look here's what happened and she was like right i don't want to talk about it right now and so i got on a train back to Britain. <laughs> So when I was trying to write this and I was trying to come up with, I was thinking about movies that people might know where I could like sci-fi it up and make a <laughs> reference to it. And I was looking through like holiday romance. Nobody things. puts bleep blorp in the corner. Nobody puts bleep blorp in the corner. Right. So I don't like Dirty Dancing no. as a film because I don't see it as a happy film. I see it as a horrible film about backstreet abortions. And, like, 
on the internet, everyone's going, oh, it's a lovely, it's a lovely film about having sex in a holiday park. It's not a mm. lovely film about that. It's literally about the things that the American Supreme Court have literally just made happen. But like all the synopses of Dirty Dancing are like, girl goes to holiday park, meets Patrick Swayze and has fun. It's really difficult to translate that to happening at Pontins, isn't it? <laughs> they did do the hokey cokey at some point, but... That's what it's all about, though. <laughs> Danny, uh, you're up next. What have you got for us uh, in the realm of holidays? I decided to talk about camping holidays because mm. the majority of holidays that I have had have been intense and also intense. intense. Hey, that's <laughs> a great pun. I love that. Thank you. But yeah, like I, I never had a foreign holiday until I was able to kind of pay for the flights myself and like we so yeah camping was the thing that we did and even though i've spent literally hundreds of nights under canvas i still don't see why people make the choice to do it <laughs> like voluntarily <laughs> like i had to do it as a scout because like that's what you do as a scout they didn't go all right, we're going on a camp, but, you know, there's the option of the B&B as well if you want to pay a bit extra. Like, it was always, no, straight in the tent. You'd get your uh, three-star badge. I've been in some B&Bs that I deserved a badge for going into. <laughs> I spent a very pleasant night in a double bed with John Bounds in a B&B, and it was uh, it was luxurious. I mean, dude, we've all, we've all done it. We've all done it. There's no need to, there's no <laughs> need only, to brag. Mark, actually, Mark, you're the only one out of this uh, podcast I haven't shared a hotel room with. I mean, what I will say about when John and I shared a room is I did make him go for a jog in the morning. So sorry, John. You asshole. It is convention season after the new series of Hitchhiker's Guide comes out on Netflix. <laughs> and I imagine that our podcast will get so popular that uh, we will be invited. So uh, People will be cosplaying as us. It'll be that popular. <laughs> Would you be insulted by somebody cosplaying as you? Like... By what people perceive as you, you imagine yes. they perceive as you as fancy dress. If you saw it, I would kind of love it. Earth humans are dumb, dim, stupid thickies. Card-carrying nincompoops, pearl-handled prats of the highest order, and gormless, witless morons to a person. This is science. For a while, the subject was hotly contested amongst the learned community of fringe ethnocultural anthropologists and consumers of Earth culture, but the evidence was too overwhelming to deny. Reality television, treating corporations like people, then giving them more rights than actual people, and golf being just a few. But what really swung it was recreational camping. Even to this day, if you want to give any being in the galaxy a chuckle, from the Glervian Ice Maidens to the stoic mineral daddies and rock bottoms of Granite Granite, so stone they named it twice, remind them that humans spent thousands of years painfully developing housing technology only to sack it off for a week in a tent in Evesham. Well, goes the typical counter-argument, if they enjoy sleeping on the floor, being cold and uncomfortable and risking all sorts of diseases on poorly cooked food, who are we to judge? After all, Zaphod Beeblebrox himself, Galaxian president with the highest approval rating of all time, ran on a platform of not only getting rid of kink-shaming but the eradication of the concept of shame altogether and letting it all hang out. So what a person does for pleasure is between them, their eye doctor and a willing cephalopod. Let humans have their miserable, uncomfortable, boring fun. 
but on closer inspection with camp beds, inflatable sofas, portable fridges, speaker systems, bug zappers, travel carpets and solar lighting, it was evident that a lot of camping energy was spent trying to achieve the minimum standards of comfort the campers left at home. And with this, the dam broke. The Earth humans became a laughingstock. Speciest jokes sprang up, such as, why did the Earth human cross the transport corridor? Literally no reason, the facilities were the same either side. Around the turn of Earth's second millennium, from which point they started actually counting, camping was rebranded as glamping, which is interesting. The word comes from glamour, an old human word for the fairy magic of changing the appearance of something without actually changing the thing itself. So you could appear to be living in fairly luxurious surroundings, but the fields still smell of shit, and the chances of tripping over a tent peg and landing in an ant's nest, not zero. This only added to the derision. Of course, there was a spirited defence from the socially conscious and noted space communist John Beat Boop Space Name Bounds. They pointed out that camping was an affordable way the worker drones of the Earth species could get a holiday, which they deserve and often needed. It was then pointed out that the very existence of an entire class whose lives revolve around a bone-crushing, dispiriting job for which the only relief is two weeks in a wet tent in pissing Southport isn't exactly a ringing endorsement for the intelligence of a species in the first place. To which John Beatboot muttered something about space Gramsci and shuffled off. Before its demolition and subsequent rebuilding, the Galactic Council saw fit to construct a huge sign to be read on the Ethernet on a planet near Earth. It read, rather unkindly, this author notes, slow species ahead. And in the middle, a picture of a tent. Luckily, no Earth technology was developed enough to pick this up, and the humans themselves were very far away from the sort of interstellar travel where they would encounter it, the dolts. Beautiful. I mean, yeah, I mainly didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a what? comedy roast. What makes you think it? What makes you think it referenced you? I have a, a memory of trying to put up a tent in the pitch black in Gigglesworth, uh, up in the north, Gigglesworth. I believe it is, Eagleswick. We went there because me and my friend from Egypt, we were supposed to go to the New Forest and the trains weren't going that way. So we, because <laughs> there was, you know, works, there were works on. And so we ended up going elsewhere and ended up in, in Eagleswick, trying to pitch a tent at midnight in the pitch black and wondering why it was so difficult. And it wasn't until the morning that we, when we woke up and we realised we were trying to pitch our tent on a path which was concreted. <laughs> I once, um, I once took a tent to the Reading Festival, and I didn't have a tent. I we borrowed a tent, and there were three of us, and we went to the Reading Festival, and we tried to pitch our tent. We didn't know how to pitch the tent, so we got a space, and then we looked at it, and then uh, we walked around the Reading Festival site looking for someone else who had a tent that looked a little bit like it, who might know how to put it up. Persuaded them to come back and put the tent up, which they did. Great. And about um, three o'clock in the morning, it fell down. So um, we we hoisted it back up for that first night at the Reading Festival, and then we hoisted it back up when it fell down again for the second night at the Reading Festival. On the third, <laughs> the third night, night at the Reading Festival, up. we did not hoist the fucker back up. We just slept under it like a quilt. 
<laughs> and uh, with our heads out in the flap in the pissing rain with our heads in a ditch and then we decided the tent was fucking useless although packed the tent back up carried it all the way back to birmingham and then put it in a skip well you know leave nothing but footprints john <laughs> when i was a scout i had the most badges <laughs> you're the badgest uppest i literally had the most badges there and Did you have a badge for most badges and yes. because my parents were scout leaders, I had to earn my badges twice because they wouldn't to cook prove corners. To prove against nepotism. Yeah. They earned the Chief Scout Award, which is the equivalent of the Gold DV. Like, I was... What happened, Dan? Oh, we were drinking back then. Like, we ah. were 15 years old. We were drinking. Like, but back then, the leaders were drinking as well. So sure, you could everyone put, was. You could put your empties in the same bin as the leaders. And because mm-hmm. they were so pissed, they don't remember what they were drinking and how much they drank. Like, you never got caught. And, of course, mm. you had to drink twice as much as that. I used of course, to drink you twice as much as the other scouts. Just to <laughs> prove that it wasn't nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure it wasn't your dad drinking all your beer. You do some orienteer and you salute the flag, go and have a quick cig around the back and then uh, crack on. Those were the days. Those were the Quit. days. Yeah. Right, next up. Mr. Bounds, please. Uh, oh, shit, what it's me. do you? Yeah, it's you, my dude. Um, Hi, John. What can you bring to us on the subject of holidays, please? Well, I was going to go a little bit more mature, to be honest. I was thinking about that. Uh, a saga I mean, holiday. <laughs> yeah, not far off. Still got it. He's like a scout. He's always prepared. I was going to talk about how difficult um, holidays involving your extended family. No, you, not your family Ooh. that you like. Mm-hmm. Not your family that you chose and married and loved because they're the spawn of your own. The best minds. ones. But the, those family that you didn't get any choice over. And I was going to talk about um, how we can think about that scientifically. And you might understand that and you might not. And it is quite difficult physics, so do keep up. I'm paying very <laughs> close attention. Vacations are pointless, says the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Due to the infinite nature of space, there's always a reality in which you were already where you were going. In a multiverse, you can't get away from it all. It all is everywhere. A due probability-wise are everywhere too. And every when, and every will. You may as well just stay at home. Or to put it another way, wherever you go, there you are. Astrophysics departments at some of the universe's more neoliberal universities have used this theory to reduce paid leave for staff. Particularly casual staff whose union responded, huh, meh, and leant back sipping a Brownian motion generator and wearing flip-flops. Earth travellers may be at the mercy of dodgy deals and it's difficult to choose exactly where or when or will to go. Plan carefully, or unbeknownst to you, the red tape cutting of environmental laws on planet Jacob 3, extending back into the past, may already have been going to lead to a dense gas cloud, the haunting Jacob 3 smog, blocking out the twin suns you were going to bask under. But there is a larger problem, which is literally homegrown, and it's one where Einstein's theories on the space-time concept of holidaying are needed to reflect the gravity of the situation. As Albert said, relativity shouldn't mean you go on holiday with your family. And he did not just say this because his mum wouldn't let him go out with his hair like that. This problem is not because of mass debates on where to stay, or the position of the sun, or, if you're at Butlins, the sheer speed of light entertainment. It's just that they are a colossal pain, and you just won't have the energy. 
Holiday relativity theory is that going on holiday with a large group of family will not be any more relaxing than being at home with them. As Einstein said, if you take a clock travelling away from your family at the speed of light against one that stays with them, it won't take up any more time, but it will seem longer, much longer if they insist on playing car games. Holiday relativity theory proposes an addendum to the three-phase concept of civilization. As we know, the first phase is characterised by the question, how can we eat? The second by the question, why do we eat? And the third by the question, where shall we have lunch? On holiday with your family, you will need all the time in the universe to come to a conclusion that satisfies everyone. The theory can only be squared with quantum physics when we assume that space-time is curved and essentially people who can't decide which place is best for a holiday can get bent and shove their singularity up their black hole. This is all worse if any of your family hold positions greater than Brigadier in the British Army. This is known as the general theory of relativity. If your family member is in the US Army, they have to hold a rank greater than Colonel for this to apply, but at least you can eventually write a family comedy film about how they eventually learn to be softer to their kids and everyone else learn to be more tolerant of their strict ways. And you don't have to go to Butlin's Minehead. You can't choose your family, but you can choose not to go on holiday with them. The guide's advice is to do that, or at least go hitchhiking without telling them. Or to put it another way, wherever you go, there they bloody are. And that very much speaks to the only other type of holiday I had, which was um, holiday camp holidays with extended family. So you'd get your grandparents, you'd get your aunts and uncles or your uncle's mates in one chalet. Don't tell anyone you're not supposed to have you're not supposed to have them. Because they, they uh, haven't got a car to get into the clubhouse. Yeah, the aunties and the uncles and their kids that you don't get on with. And everybody's trying to decide whether we do stuff as a group, whether it be selfish to go off and do stuff on your own, whether, we, whether we're going to go to the bingo. Uh, like, it it's absolutely speaks to that manoeuvring of a, a ocean liner <laughs> that is deciding what you're going to do as a group. But it's an ocean liner that has engines at six different parts that all want to go in the same direction at the same time that also then takes a millennia to turn around to, to figure out which direction to go in. It is the worst. As anyone who, like Danny, perhaps has some form of attention uh, issue, the standing around for what seems like days on end waiting for someone to make a fucking decision about where they're going to go is the worst. Especially because everybody is going, well I don't mind well I don't mind, well I don't mind well I don't mind. If nobody fucking minds then let's just go to one Oh no, I don't, I, you know what, I don't feel like that one today. I just, I don't feel like Chinese food tonight. I don't mind, but not that one. You know what Emma gets like with a belly You just said you didn't mind And if you're a holiday camp, there's only two choices Anyway. And most of it's Wapney's Red Barrel. But I, I didn't start off trying to write that. I was trying <laughs> to be nice to um, <laughs> yeah. people. I'd like to point out that I didn't notice. I didn't mention communism once. That is neoliberalism, true. which yeah, which is not communism, but at least you know you you were in, if not the ballpark, then at least playing the same game. Absolutely, absolutely. Like if you mention the opposite of something, you're mentioning the thing. So I thought by essentially doing a Michael McIntyre 
space observational comedy thing or by uh you know when you're on holiday right and you're there and you're on holiday right mm? and, and you're, you're trying to choose restaurants right mm. right mm? and mm. everybody's trying to decide where they're going mm. Mm? i'm relatable everybody's got this special draw where they continually squash their bollocks into it because the existence is pointless i would listen to a nihilist uh <laughs> thinking like he would be amazing do you know do you know how nothing matters i remember when you you make a choice and it doesn't ultimately matter because we're all going to die anyway <laughs> do you remember <laughs> that entropy is how everything turns out all things decay. do you remember do you remember how all things decay do you remember <laughs> all systems point to entropy even restaurants <laughs> What are our favourite car games, then? I quite like Yellow Car. I just like the simplicity of Yellow Car. That's quite violent. My girlfriend is called Lucy. So we play Yellow Car quite a lot. And so the rules are, if you see a Yellow Car, you hit the other person. And So I thought I was a really... I thought I was brilliant at Yellow Car. I thought it was like, <laughs> she never gets the Yellow Cars before me, and she's paying attention to the road, so I must be brilliant at Yellow Car, because I have ADHD, and I'm thinking about all sorts as we so go So again, down. she's driving, often, right? Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> She's just propelling both human bodies safely at multiple uh, miles an hour. Yeah. So yeah. I was, I thought I was brilliant at yellow car. I was like, bang, bang, right in the leg, bang. She's like, oh, don't hit me in the same spot because it really hurts. I was like, shut up, bang. That's my brake foot. Oh. I can't drive if my leg's numb. I'm like, it's yellow car. We've got to play it. It's not how you play yellow car. But anyway. I thought I was, br- I thought I was brilliant at it. And yeah. so Lucy goes for an eye test and gets a new prescription on her glasses. And we go on a car journey. Oh, And wow. I get absolutely destroyed at yellow car like all the way to the point where i'm like ow ow no not in the same spot it really hurts and she's like no fuck you and no I need mercy that for breaking but yeah she's like no mercy for the week <laughs> fuck you and it turns out i'm not good at yellow car because i have no attention uh, to pay uh i'm not good at yellow car lucy was just pretty much legally blind for the entire first half of our relationship well no <laughs> right at the start i can definitely say that yeah Fuck off. Uh, which was a little worrying but then i forgot about it but it's all fine now i don't like car games because i drive the car yeah so everyone else in the car do do whatever the fuck it is you're doing and just fuck off and let, and let me work. drive this car as you say mark let me drive these tons of metal yes. at high speed yes and just fuck off and no, I don't care if you want to piss because right now I'm driving. And it's my job to keep you all alive. Soon I will want to piss and then we will have a piss. <laughs> and then the piss will be had. Well, it now befalls upon me to uh, to present <laughs> Behove, to you. Behoves. <laughs> Behoves. You bailed is- on it while it was happening. <laughs> It will haven't been uh, my behaven. duty. Behaven on you. Behaven, uh, behaven with you to uh, to present to you my piece on working holidays. Oh, hello. Mm. The success of his first book came as something of a shock to Viet Vujigig, the humorist who became fascinated with what happened to all the biros that went missing over the years. Round Biro Land with a pencil case spawned a number of copycats, including a You a Cheap Green Retractable, playing the Golumbitzes at Arcturan Mega Tennis, and Mallory Phallus Journeys Inside My Own Butthole. 
An entire industry was spun up to develop machine learning algorithms that could generate fake scenarios that sounded just plausible enough to have been drunken bar bets. The popularity of the format enabled recent graduates and bored baristas to fund elaborate holidays to far-flung corners of the galaxy. The sheer number of works exploded when it was discovered that a traveller could fund their entire gap year by hopping forwards in time to a period when the book's residuals rolled in, then zipping back to cash the cheque. This caused alarm at the Campaign for Real Time, who were less concerned about the paradoxical financial structure of this new publishing paradigm, and more with the grammatical and syntactical nightmares that arose as authors tried to grapple with describing their hijinks in the past tense when they technically hadn't yet happened. Eventually, the fad faded as fads so foffen do. Yet, one largely obscure and unsung title still remains as an exemplar of the genre and something of a cult hit. The whole picture told the story of two friends, Jankum Frimp and Womble Frown, who bet themselves they could travel to and photograph each known wormhole in the western spiral arm of the galaxy in two cosmic weeks. The deadline was set by their ship's pilot, Blodge, who had to be in court the next day to contest a speeding ticket. There then followed a quick jaunt to three years in the future when the book's advance was paid out, then back to begin their journey. A popular highlight of the book tells of how Frimp struggled pegging in the ground sheet of their backpacker's pocket universe, while Frown looked on, delivering lines of Vogon poetry to the uncaring forest beyond. Despite the critics' plaudits and the fact that one of the co-authors was the cousin of noted space communist John Beat Boop's space name Bounds, sales were less than all had hoped. It remains notable, however, for having one of the least appealing front cover quotes of all time. From Bowerick Wowbagger the Infinitely Prolonged, the quote merely reads, Holy shit. It's a bit inside, mate. A little bit, little bit inside baseball, isn't it? If it encourages people to explore deeper, that would be very good. It's basically an ARG at this point. <laughs> you need to take this as the rabbit hole and find peer review by... What's the publisher? Uh, Summersdale. From Summersdale Books, available in all good bookshops. Danny Smith, John Bounds. It's out of print. Sold out. Well, that's depressing. Sold out. We'll cut that bit. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's, 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 sold, it's sold well. It's, it's sold right. it, it, enough, I think. It, it, it filled its market. It, I did recently uh, hand a copy into a library of Birmingham because oh. they didn't have it. It was really awkward because it was like, I, uh, "Hi, I wrote a book. Do you want it?" It's like, <laughs> it's like giving a, like a, a note to someone that you fancy. Like it was just, there was a lot of <laughs> there was a lot of e- did, did you drop bucket? it in a wet bucket? <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, if someone came up to me with, with, with who I didn't really, who I'd never really noticed before, with a note and it had an ISBN number in it, I'd be impressed. <laughs> the first time I read Peer Review, I, I I can literally remember sending the text to you two about this, just going, "Wait, Danny's the practical one," and and so the stuff about Danny going on a camping holiday earlier on is just. Oh, absolute catnip to me. Like I, I, I love I love that Danny has these two personas, one one of which is this like frivolous arty goth, and the other one is he's the most practical person I know other than my dad. It's annoying, isn't it? 
Because it's, you just wanted to just stick in a fucking lane. Just yeah, stay in a lane. Exactly. I love the fact that somebody could invite me over to kind of help them decorate and they never know what they're going to get. Like somebody that turns up drunk with a bottle of wine shouting things at their neighbours or somebody criticising the fact that their wallpaper's not straight. Like, <laughs> it's attention. I've seen you do both. But John has the demeanour of someone who knows how to pitch a tent. Oh, I know how to pitch a tent. I just can't be asked. You have been listening to John Bounds, John Hickman, Danny Smith and me, Mark Stedman. We are Beware of the Leopard and our voice of the guide is the notorious Emma Wright. You'll find links to all of our stuff along with our back catalogue at btlpodcast.com. That's where you can also sign up to be informed when our next episode drops as well as some other occasional goodies. If you have any follow-up for us, feedback at btlpodcast.com is where you can send it. I hope you like the new music. I thought it might be time for a change since we're now five years old, although uh, we look a lot, a lot older. Anyway, we will be back in a few weeks with our next episode all about books. I know, two whole episodes in a year. We're spoiling you. Until then, share and enjoy. An excursion to a local Roman ruin where you can buy cherry aid and melted ice cream, a bleeding Watney's red barrel, and one night they take you to a typical restaurant with local atmosphere and colour, and you sit next to a party from real and they keep thinking I love the Costa Brava and you get cornered by some drunken green goater from Luton with instrumental camera and last Tuesday Daily Express and he's going on and on who's running the country in many languages Margaret Powell can speak and she throws up all over the Cuba Libras and spending four days on the tarmac at Luton Airport on a five day package tour with nothing to eat but dry British Airways sandwiches and he can't even get a glass of water in his red barrel because he's leaving England and the bloody bar closed every time you're thirsty and the Kids are crying and vomiting and breaking the plastic ashtrays and they keep telling you there won't be another hour. But you know damn well the plane is still in Iceland because you have to turn back to take a party of Swedes to Yugoslavia. Of course it loads it until we're at three in the morning. You sit on the tarmac for four hours because of unforeseen difficulties, i.e. the permanent strike of air traffic control over Paris and you finally get to Malaga Airport. Everybody's queuing for the bloody toilets and skewing for the bloody half-customs officers and queuing for the bloody buses and they're waving Take for the hotel hasn't been built, and when you finally get the half-built Algerian ruin called the Hotel Limassol, while paying the half the holiday money to a licensed Spanish bastard in a taxi, there's no water in the pool, there's no water in the bath, there's no water in the tap, and there's only a bleeding lizard in the bed. And half the rooms are double booked, and you can't sleep anyway because the permanent are in the judges in the hotel next door. Meanwhile, the Spanish National Tourist Board promises that the uh, raging cholera epidemic is merely a mild outbreak of the Spanish Cove rather than the previous outbreak in 1616, which even the bloody rats had died from. Anyway, sorry. Well, it's not, not mine, the work of uh, Eric Idle, I think. Mr. Eric Idle. FX, clapping. Bounder of Adventure. Or, uh, what was it? Or, or would you like a blowjob? That's the, uh, <laughs> that, was the, that was the live version. That's not what, what? they did on the... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, can you make it out of these outtakes, Mark? Well, I can make, I can make a approach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, looks like I picked the wrong day to stop spilling booze on my lap. <laughs> I can make a hat. 